0: Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet, a weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common, agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends and welcome to Idle Chatter. Ray Bohacks here, the hot rod farmer and I hope that the sound of my voice is finding things going well for you today and that you're having a blessed day. And as I always tell my wife, if by some chance you're not having a great day, tomorrow will always be better. And i found that it always does work out that uh, if you have a day that's less than ideal then the next day usually uh, counterbalances that in life, and uh, you go along with pretty smooth sailing. So, if you're listening to this uh, through the Ag Daily website, I greatly appreciate that, and I will ask you to not to forget to visit uh, my website, Farm Machinery Digest. Dot com because there's a lot of other information up there be- beside the podcast. It's actually an educational website for agricultural machinery. So if you listen to it on Ag Daily, then please visit that. And if you are listening to this through my website, then I ask you to also visit Ag Daily because they have a lot of interesting podcasts uh, that they that they host there also. So it's a it's a good. Thing to go back and forth between the two sites. But today I'm going to have a, a podcast and I've struggled with what I'm going to call it so I really haven't defined its name yet but I guess for this particular point I'll say what every farmer needs to know about ethanol and ethanol enhanced gasoline and it's uh, very frustrating for me and because within the agricultural community So many of us are supportive of ethanol, and believe it or not, some of us are not, but I guess when you have a community as large as that, you'll always find people that want to row against the tide. But my talk today is not going to be a political talk. It's not going to be an economic talk. I have, I'm going to talk to you as an engine man. I'm going to talk to you as an engineer I'm not going to talk to you as a farmer or a patriot. So the fact that ethanol has so many, brings so many advantages to the agricultural community and also to our country as a whole for patriotic reasons because it's a renewable home-based fuel. But what I will do is I am going to have a discussion that is focused on the engineering aspects of ethanol and its value as a fuel. And I think that is a mistake that the industry makes so often when you hear people, the advocates of ethanol talking, and everything that they say is true, but I think what they need to realize is that in most parts of the country, their talking points do not resonate with the consumers. I mean, you have to keep in mind that I'm in New Jersey. I'm about as far from the Corn Belt as you could get. And still be in the United States, I mean, metaphorically speaking. And I, uh, our farm is sandwiched between New York City and Philadelphia. So we're surrounded on both sides uh, by large metropolitan areas. And the disconnect of those people to agriculture is beyond belief. I mean, that could be two or three podcasts on uh, uh, by itself. That they have no association with agriculture whatsoever and then when the agricultural community and the biofuels community tries to make a plea that this is a a fuel to support rural america as one of their talking points is that truly falls on deaf ears and really what i look at ethanol i look at ethanol as the gmo gasoline and just like gmo crops have so much i mean there's I mean, we all know there's so much bad data going on about GMO when they're being demonized and, and biotech crops are being demonized and everything is being demonized by those who never grew anything in their life. Um, and the same thing is happening with ethanol. Ethanol is akin to, uh, to GMO crops. So if you put those two together, you have the people that are so adverse, so against it. So uh, they're so adverse to it is, properly, is the proper way for me to say it is that, uh, and they're the type of people that do not want to be, you know, don't confuse them with the truth. Don't bother them with the truth. They have their own agenda and their own mindset and uh, that's basically it. They've made up their mind without any facts. They they invent the facts as they go along. But I want to start with a little story. and. As many of you know, if you've been listening to the podcast or visiting my website, that we do grow fresh market sweet corn in New Jersey. And we do sell uh, a a good portion of it at a roadside stand. And the corn that we grow is a non-GMO sweet corn and it's a non-BT sweet corn. So it has no traits in it whatsoever for earworm protection or what have you. And it's an old-fashioned, it's a hybrid, it's a bicolor corn. So, in some ways, it's an old-fashioned, non-traded corn, uh, no, non-GMO corn, what have you. And the reason why we grow that is not because that I am against that technology, by no means whatsoever. But as I've said in previous podcasts, when you deal with the consumer right over the sales counter, uh, not dealing to a wholesale account is that the, so many things come into play when you're trying to sell them an ear of corn. The appearance of the corn, the, the appearance of the husk, the color of the husk, the color of the silks, uh, the the size of the ear, there's so many things, The we had one woman tell us that she didn't like our ratio of yellow to white kernels, now a bicolor corn. Uh, everything that you could imagine plus comes into play and we and since we do not s- raise a GMO corn and the reason why we don't raise it is that the corn that we are that we've been that I do raise for about 10 actually 10 years now we've grown a following with it has a very unique taste it has all of the attributes that my customers want and so what we have done is that we've also marketed it as a non-gmo pesticide free sweet corn and I use the advertising tagline grown in harmony with nature because we do plant cover crops and we do a bunch of other things. We have pollinator habitat on the farm which obviously has nothing to do with the pollination of the corn but uh, so I do market it that way uh, simply because that's what I do have And because we are selling a raising a non-GMO sweet corn, that has opened the door for everybody to come up. And I swear to God, probably every tenth customer wants to sue Monsanto, and they want to do this, and they want to do this, and they want to do that. And it's it's. I mean, you know, as an aside to this, I kind of chuckle and please don't think that I'm trying to come across as a know-it-all by no means am, am I that whatsoever. There's, there's more things in life I don't know than I do know. But I listen to all these people who they want to be advocates for agriculture and they want to do talks and they want to do this and, they, and, and what have you. If you really want to be an advocate for agriculture come to my farm stand and deal with the consumer right over the counter because anybody and I'm saying this respectfully you know if you if you're raising grain that's a whole different business and you're selling it to a grain elevator and maybe you'll go into town then you will go into the supermarket and you'll be able to engage someone to a certain extent about GMO crops or the use of pesticides or modern farm practices and there's probably a a slight chance that you will be able to do that but we get to engage everyone that comes to the farm stand because probably 90% of the people want to engage us and talk about the evils of modern agriculture and uh, you know, I even suggested this at a crop meeting to, to the Syngenta representative and uh, just that he happened to be there I said to him, you know you're giving a speech here and how we need to connect with the consumers you're not going to connect with the consumer at the grain elevator I'm very sorry and it, that's not happening you're not going to have Mr. and Mrs. Joe Public standing there at the grain elevator waiting to engage you about uh, about GMO crops. I said, you need to come into the trenches. I said, you need to come to a farm stand like ours that raises sweet corn and and deals with the direct market consumer and deals with the consumer face to face. If you truly want to, if you truly want to win this battle of educating the consumer about the benefit of GMO technology I said you're not going to win it at the grain elevator and and it's the wrong place I said you're preaching to the choir there so anyway ultimately like most things in life they fell on deaf ears but you know I'm telling you that story because everyone who comes to our farm and brings up on their own about GMO technology and and all of the other things I would have to say that in almost every instance, they have incorrect data, or they put two pieces of data together, or they use some sort of result that was really meaningless because it wasn't 42% glyphosate with two quarts per acre. It was a hundred percent glyphosate and, you know, somebody drank it or something ridiculous like that or they gave pure glyphosate to a lab poor lab mouse and he got cancer. And so they come there and they have no idea of what they're talking about. And they just come there with a with a bias. With a real bias and they just uh, and like I say it, it happens to be a benefit for us because we raise non-GMO sweet corn because of the other attributes that our hybrid that we raise has but I do not engage them because I'm not there to engage people but I will tell people if I have the opportunity that I'm not against GMO crops and biotechnology I think it's I said we could not feed the world without that but you know we just happen to choose to raise a non-GMO sweet corn I leave it at that but what does this have to do with gasoline? And what does that have to do with ethanol? Everything, and not because ethanol is based upon gasoline. I mean, it's based upon corn. Excuse me. <clears throat> there is so much misinformation within every aspect of the cons- consuming community or consumer community as far as ethanol is concerned that it's 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 I think in some ways it even dwarfs GMO crops, because the only people that are really interested in the GMO crops are are those that are, I guess we'd call them foodies, uh, that they're really interested in their food, whereas in the same token you have a certain amount of people who could care less, but the consumer and the automotive enthusiast and the farmer really does not understand ethanol and gasoline, why ethanol is there, and what it's all about and sadly a few years ago I was on a nationwide radio show and I was one of the one of the guests and it was a show about uh, that e- that show that they were talking about ethanol biofuels biodiesel and then they were talking about ethanol and there was a gentleman and he's qu- quite a major ethanol producer owns refineries and what have you and uh... He was on there talking before I spoke and his whole, his whole speech about why the consumer should embrace ethanol and enhanced gasoline is because it stabilizes the price of corn. And I'm saying to myself, I'm listening on the other end because they have a telephone link and I, I couldn't believe what the man was saying because the people that are listening to the show could care less. Or, or I would say the majority of the people who are listening to the show could care less about the stabilization of the price of corn. They would only care if the price of corn goes up, they don't care if the price of corn goes down. So yes, you know, when you're dealing with an agricultural audience and an agricultural community, then, and you, then the farmer is very interested in the price of corn and his profitability profitability, and I agree with that a thousand percent. There's nothing wrong with that. But but to take a canned message, and then bring that message to a consumer audience, a nationwide radio show, and bring it to a consumer audience. Some guy in Brooklyn, New York driving a taxi, he could care less about the stabilization of the price of corn. So that's really not going to be uh, something that's going to, to tug at their heartstrings. And uh, I was very, very disappointed disappointed in him saying that or using that opportunity to just talk about the stabilization of the price of corn and the profitability of the family farm though they are important they're important to those people who are in that industry they're not important to some guy in Los Angeles so now what happens is that we have the possibility of the EPA allowing for higher grades of ethanol blends and gasoline so i think as a right i think is not a strong enough word so i'm going to correct myself as a farmer and as an engine guy as an engineer i am going to give you the lowdown on ethanol enhanced gasoline and this is going to be the facts that you've probably heard nowhere else and you've probably heard little bits of them but not all collectively and i am going to try to do my best to condense this because I could actually do a three-hour seminar on it and I cannot do a three-hour podcast on this so I could probably do a four-hour seminar on it because there's so much that needs to be covered but the most important thing the most important reason why I am doing this podcast is I want you, the farmer, the rancher, the person in the agricultural community, the person who may not be in the agricultural community but is listening to this podcast, to understand and have the proper talking points and to embrace ethanol based fuels. You know, it disappoints me. I mean, we have only. E-10 in New Jersey. We've had that for, for probably close to 20 years now. We don't have anything other than E-10 in New Jersey. I can't buy E-85 in New Jersey. I can't buy E-0 in New Jersey. I can't buy E-20. So we've had e- E-10 for close to 20 years now, and we run on E-10 all year long. But I do travel extensively, and I do go out into uh, out west into the Great Plains and, and further out west into, uh, you know, the western Corn Belt, Nebraska, and then into Wyoming, Montana, what have you. And my wife and I do i do that for business and for pleasure. I, I think some of God's greatest handiwork is in the American West. But anyway, you it would always shocked me that I could start a conversation with someone in some small town in Nebraska at a gas station or at a cafe stopping to get a cup of coffee or some lunch or something and but predominantly at a gas station and and talk to them and find out that even though that gas station is surrounded by corn that they have an adverse opinion of ethanol based gasoline and i'm not saying everyone but you would tend to think that someone that lives in that community would have more of, even if they didn't have a knowledge of it, they would at least have an affinity for it. Say, so I really don't understand it, but I know we raise corn here for ethanol and that supports my neighbors and supports our community, and uh, what have you. And they really, I've run into more people than I care to that don't really under, don't really have, it, have an affinity for it. That they 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 choose they choose the product that does not have ethanol at the pump and or if they are buying the ethanol based product they're only buying it because it has a lower cost per gallon which is fine as long as they buy it right but they really don't understand it nor feel (coughs) any association or connection to it. So here we go we're going to start our talk about everything you want to know about ethanol enhanced gasoline uh, that you never knew This story actually goes back to 1955 some people will tell you it goes back to to the Henry Ford days because he wanted to run his engines on straight ethanol but it really goes back to 1955 because in 1955 Congress enacted the first Clean Air Act and that's really what it's all about. Is the first Clean Air Act, and the first Clean Air Act came out in 1955, and that was when the government realized there was no EPA yet, but the government realized that there was an issue with air pollution, and to tell you the truth, Los Angeles was the was the catalyst for that was for the catalyst for the. Un- the the smog and having the government say that hey we really need to do something to clean up the air and the automobile was the major contributor to air pollution and especially what they would call smog which is ground level ozone and uh, oxides of nitrogen emission along with other emissions uh, creates photochemical smog and that was what Los Angeles used to be famous for you'd go up on the hill and look down and it looked like it was always cloudy like it was in a fog because it was the smog. So subsequently there was there was four or five more clean air acts. there was the original Clean Air Act of 1955 there was the one in, of 1963. 1967, 1970, 1977, and 1990. And the Clean Air Act was the driver for unleaded fuel which came about for the 1975 model year cars and that was mandated to be in gas stations in July of 1974 in preparation for the 1975 cars that were equipped with a catalytic converter. And the catalytic converter Basically the term catalyst means that it speeds up something without itself being speeds up a chemical reaction without itself becoming consumed. And the catalytic converter takes hydrocarbons, Hc and carbon monoxide and converts it into a, into a harmless gas. And for the catalytic converter to function it could not see lead. Lead would actually, the catalyst has precious metals in it and those precious metals react with the emissions in the exhaust and converts them to a benign gas and once lead was introduced to the catalyst through the exhaust it would actually coat those pellets or actually it was a monolith. General Motors used pellets, everybody else used a monolith which was like a honeycomb and then it would coat them and then it would insulate them from the lead would be an insulator from the gas, act- the exhaust gas, reacting with the precious metals, and then the converter would become would not become clogged. It would become inefficient. It would be add to its conversion rate would ramp down dramatically until it eventually got down to zero. So the catalytic converter needed to see unleaded fuel because it would become benign with with any introduction of lead coating it. And that was the Clean Air Act of 1970 uh, had that to be included for the 1975 model year. They always give the car companies a number of years to get ready for the change in the technology. And then to go backwards, the Clean Air Act of 1955 was actually the impetus for the PCV valve, positive crankcase ventilation. Those of you that are old enough and are listening to this will remember the old road draft tubes that used to be underneath cars to ventilate the crankcase. And those were replaced by the PCV valve which would then take the fumes from the crankcase and reburn it into the engine. So those clean air acts are what drove the automobile industry to a great extent and the clean air act of 1990 stated that there must be an oxygenate added to the gasoline and an oxygenate is basically what it says it's oxygen molecules that without getting into advanced chemistry that the gasoline would have to have have additional oxygen molecules in it and that led to the creation of what we would call RFG reformulated gasoline and that was mandated in the 1990 Clean Air Act and if we go backwards to to 1975 uh, when we started to eradicate lead from gasoline but then all of the leaded gasoline was not eradicated from the market until I think 1986 or 87 is that they phased in the unleaded fuel but lead was a very inexpensive way to add octane to gasoline. And it had other attributes to it. It also was a lubricant for valves. But it, had, it was a very inexpensive way to add octane to gasoline. And usually what the refiners would do, and they still do that today, and I'll address this later on in the podcast, is that they will uh, make sub, what they call sub-octane gasoline. So, let's say, arguably, back in the day, they wanted an 87-octane gasoline when they had lead. They would make an 84 or 85-octane gasoline, and then, then dose it with the lead, and the lead would bring it up to the 87 or 88 or 90, whatever the number may be, octane gasoline. So, even when you were buying a high-test or premium gasoline, it was usually it was usually sub uh sub-octane of the value and then the lead was used to bring the octane up. And then when unleaded fuel came out they had to devise other ways to raise the octane. There was always other ways to raise the octane but lead was the least expensive way. So then in 1990 the 1990 Clean Air Act mandated that there must be an oxygenate added to the fuel and the reason for the oxygenate was to reduce ground level ozone emissions so there is a chemical and it's abbreviated MTBE and its chemical name is methyl tertiary butyl ether it's a real mouthful and that's why it's called MTBE and MTBE is very 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 nasty stuff I mean, you could look up MTBE, and it's—I uh, mean, it's—it forget about it. I mean, it's a—it's a very dangerous, dangerous chemical. And the bad thing about MTB also is that if it leaches into the groundwater table, it pollutes—it it pollutes it and does not does not go away. So, MTBE was added to gasoline, and MTBE was an oxygenate. And what also it did was it acted like lead and it raised the octane so the oil companies were allowed and i have nothing against oil companies so let's get that clear that they were allowed they're, they're a wonderful part of america and they're great employers and they uh, give us the energy we need so this is no knock on the oil companies uh and mtb allowed them to add an oxygenate into the fuel to meet the EPA standard to reduce ground level ozone and to also raise the octane and it was relatively inexpensive and everyone was happy except when and believe it or not one of the first cases of, of MTBE laced gasoline leaching into the groundwater table was in New Jersey about 15 or 18 miles from our farm and then it was found out that this MTBE is real nasty stuff. And it also uh, gave off a different. It, it gave off some, especially in the winter time, in winter blends of gasoline, when it was being uh, burned, that some people were very sensitive to it. Their eyes would burn. They would start to cough from the fumes from the exhaust. And uh, I never experienced that, nor do I know anybody that did, but they claim that that was the case. But anyway. So what was found out was that this we need to get rid of this MTBE. And then at the same time, around 2005 or so, President Bush, the second President Bush, uh, instituted uh, the Renewable Fuels Standards. So now we had two things that were great for the ethanol industry, and they were... That they wanted to, the government wanted to eliminate MTBE from gasoline, and I think MTBE from gasoline was totally eliminated around 2006. And we also had the renewable fuel standard where we needed to to blend some renewable American-based products into the gasoline. And ethanol was the champion; it was the prince because. It, it was an oxygenate. It raised the octane of the, of the fuel, as MTB did. It was safe and it would met the renewable fuel standards. So now my question to you and to the ethanol biofuels industry and is a frustration of mine? When people want to eliminate ethanol from gasoline as they do GMO, because they want to eliminate GMO crops, I ask them, and I'm not saying the average Joe on the street, but when these talking heads bring this up and tell us how, you know, food or fuel, which we know is not true, is that I say, okay, that's fine. Let's forget about the renewable fuel standard. Let's forget about all of that. We don't want any renewable fuels. Let's forget about that. You tell me, and this is what my frustration is with the ethanol industry. You tell me what are we going to use that is going to be a safe oxygenate into the gasoline since we need to either use safe and relatively inexpensive oxygenate into the gasoline, which there's other oxygenates, but your gasoline would be $5 a gallon, into the fuel to meet the EPA Clean Air Act of 1990. And I purposely pause there because that is the sound that you would get. And it frustrates me that the ethanol industry doesn't bring that up. Because we need to have, by, unless Congress changes and erases the Clean Air Act of 1990, the fuel in the majority of the country needs to have an oxygenate in it. And ethanol is an excellent, excellent oxygenate and why it is not spoken about i have no idea and that is why we have e10 in new jersey and on the east coast is because it's the oxygenate that we are that is required by law within the country they have what they call boutique fuels And boutique fuels are fuels that the EPA mandates that need to be refined and used in a certain geographic region, either due to the population base, the amount of vehicles on the road, the weather conditions, the uh, geographic location, if there's a mountain range there or what have you. and And at last count, and don't hold me to this, I think there was 35 or 40 boutique fuels in the United States. And and ethanol is a major component in that. So the first talking point is what will you use for an oxygenate if you eradicate ethanol from gasoline? Okay, so that's, that's that. The next thing I want to talk about is air fuel ratio. Now, this is getting into the engineering of, of ethanol. An air fuel ratio is the ratio the parts of air to one part of fuel so it would be let's say 14 to 1 so that means that the engine would be running on 14 parts of air to one part of fuel whenever you blend a, um, a crop protection product in your sprayer tank you are making a ratio to 2 quarts per acre you have 10 gallons per acre and 2 quarts per acre so it's a ratio so now with 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 gasoline or with fuels i should say but we'll be talking about gasoline so i'll use that term there is something called stoichiometric and it's abbreviated stoic within the engineering community we'll say stoic instead of stoichiometric because it's a long hard word to say and in simple terms stoichiometric is the air fuel ratio that is required to get the most energy release from the fuel because remember is that a engine an internal combustion engine converts chemical energy to mechanical energy and if you have a gasoline that is E0 no ethanol it has a stoichiometric ratio so the air fuel ratio that the engine wants to run on for the best efficiency will make that say it simply, is approximately 14.7 to 1. It's actually 14.68 to 1, but we'll say 14.7 to 1. Now, when you start to look at ethanol-based fuels, is that where ethanol itself has less energy per gallon than straight petroleum-based gasoline. And that is registered in British thermal units per gallon. A gallon of E0, means zero ethanol, 100% gasoline, has approximately 114,000 BTU per gallon. A a gallon of E85 has approximately 81,800 BTU per gallon. And the gallon of E100, which we don't have, which is straight ethanol, has about 76,200 BTU per gallon. So, as we add ethanol <coughs> excuse me, into the gasoline, it actually has less energy than straight gasoline. So, there's 28% less energy if you go in from E0, no ethanol, to E85. So, that is something that you're going to need to keep in mind as this conversation goes on. Now, another thing that comes up is something that's called the energy balance. And within the industry, the term energy balance means how much energy it takes to produce a unit of energy with that final product. So, in essence, if we look at eth- corn-based ethanol, is that the, the ratio is approximately 2.6 to 1. So, for every unit or every BTU of energy that is consumed to produce the corn crop and get it to market and refine the ethanol, the whole process from seed to to seed to the gas pump, it returns 2.6 times the amount of energy. And then the people that are against ethanol actually use old corn data from the 1970s when the average yield was lower, Uh, per acre and also over the past 10 years or so the ethanol refining industry has has found a lot of efficiencies like any industry so the current good number is around 2.6 so for every every uh, BTU of energy that is consumed to produce ethanol we get 2.6 back so I would love to have that in the bank account right 2.6 percent back so basically the energy balance with ethanol is positive no matter what anyone says and as an aside to this I as it was told to me that with biodiesel it's nearer 5 to 1 I think it's 4.6 to 1 or 4.56 to 1 but so ethanol is returns more energy than it takes to produce it but it has less energy than it than a gallon of pure gasoline. So now what happens is to get back to the stoichiometric the air-fuel ratio so the air-fuel ratio that needs to be in an engine which runs straight gasoline is approximately 14.7 to 1. E10 the air-fuel ratio for stoichiometric is 14.08 to 1. As we go to E15, the air-fuel ratio goes down to 13.8 to 1. At E85, the air-fuel ratio is 9.77 to 1. And on E100, the air-fuel ratio is 9 to 1. So in essence, we have to put more, we have to run, for lack of better terms, the engine richer with more ethanol in the gasoline because there's less energy content now the other thing that comes into play is the octane of the gasoline now E85 has between 100 and 105 octane and remember from previous podcasts that octane is the fuel's ability to resist combustion through pressure and heat, and wait for the arcing of the spark plug. So, ethanol has high octane, but has lower energy content. And if you and that confuses a lot of people because they have the wrong definition of octane. So octane has nothing to do with the energy content but the latent heat of vaporization of of ethanol based fuels especially E85 uh, means that as it changes three things need to happen to gasoline whether it's got ethanol in it or not to be able to be a suitable fuel to combust in an engine and those three things are that it needs to be atomized and that means broken into smoke particles but still in a liquid form it needs to be emulsified which means it needs to be mixed with air so now we have the our atomiz- atomized particles or small particles that are that are getting mixed with air and then it needs to go through a phase change from a liquid to a rarefied form to a gase- gaseous form and that is through vaporization so those three things need to happen to gasoline and so it needs to be atomized emulsified and vaporized and on the o- on a carburetor equipped engine the job of the carburetor was to atomize and emulsify but the phase change, the vaporization happens through heat and that is called the latent heat of vaporization and then also with a fuel-injected engine the same thing is the injector's job is to atomize the fuel and then the fuel mixes as it comes out of sprays out at the tip of the injector and becomes emulsified and then through heat in the engine it phase changes and then what happens is that the colder the engine is or the colder the inlet air is, the less rate of vaporization occurs at about 55 or 60 degrees Fahrenheit, only about 60% of gasoline vaporizes. And that's why an engine needs a higher, richer mixture to start when it is cold. And once you put ethanol in fuel, E10, really, it's so small, it doesn't really have any adverse effects on the rate of vaporization during cold weather. But if you go to a product like E85, is that the rate of vaporization, when it is extremely cold out, is much poorer than gas, than straight gasoline or E10. So the fuel injector has to add a lot more fuel because very little of it is changing phase. But the chemical composition of ethanol allows it to have a greater cooling effect when it does eventually change phase. And that allows the charge air into the engine to become cooler. And if anyone listened to my Horsepower and Torque or Torque to Me podcast, we've learned that for every 1% that you modify the charge air temperature, if you make it or cooler. Uh, excuse me. Every ten degrees, you modify the horsepower by one percent. I said that backwards. All So let's let's start to bring this together. If any of you have a vehicle that says flex fuel on it, on the back, flex fuel. That is a vehicle that could that that is the farmer's best friend. No matter what anybody says. I don't care what brand loyal you are. When you see flex fuel, you should get a smile on your face, especially if you're a corn farmer. And the thing is that that is a system that allows that engine to run anything between E0 and E85. And what it basically does is that the earlier systems had the earlier flex fuel vehicles had a sensor that attached to the fuel line and it was able to determine the amount of ethanol content in the gasoline and why I'm saying is that you could have a tank of E0 and then you put $20 of E85 in it so now you have some place between E85 and E0 and what this sensor would do is it would it would constantly read the ethanol content coming into the engine from the gas tank and then it had in the ECU which is the engine control computer it had what was called a lookup table and that table would modify the injector pulse width because the more ethanol that was in the engine coming into the engine the injector pulse width needed to be longer the injector needed to stay on longer because it needed to be able to supply that richer air fuel ratio because of the stoichiometric value of ethanol fuel being lower and then also ethanol fuel burns faster than gasoline so the engine required less timing so in essence that flex fuel system was is excellent and that is that and, and that's another thing that you know that we don't talk about much that when you have a flex when the car manufacturers make a flex fuel engine that's software that's able to adjust that through the sensor reading the sensor is is wonderful because that allows that person to buy anything from E85 to E0 and have a great running car later on and I won't get into that now it's a little bit too complicated they they came out with what they call a virtual flex fuel sensor and it didn't use an actual sensor reading the electro the, the electric electrical conductivity of the gasoline uh, to determine the ethanol content. It did it through an oxygen sensor, but ultimately it's still a flex fuel system. And what happens with a flex fuel engine is that it needs to increase the injector opening time, which is called the pulse width, and retard the timing because the fuel burns faster. The faster the fuel burns, the less spark advance the engine needs to make the make the uh, maximum power so that's what the flex fuel system did and that is why if you go to buy a vehicle you should try to get a flex fuel vehicle because it gives you that opportunity to be able to support an american-based product and a cleaner burning fuel its ethanol based fuels burn cleaner they are they do not burn as hot because they don't have as much energy content all right and they do have less um, and they do require a richer mixture but in essence that can all be designed around with a flex fuel vehicle so it is something that you should smile as I said when you see the flex fuel badge so let's put closure to this and let me try to make some sense to it as I finish up here if we don't have ethanol and gasoline, we're going to need to use MTBE or something like something else like that to put the oxygenate in the fuel. And as an inexpensive way to raise the octane. And it's of benefit to the oil company and a benefit to the consumer to be able to raise the octane of fuel inexpensively. Ethanol by itself which I didn't touch on is non-corrosive. It has the ability to wick in moisture and the moisture is what is makes it corrosive. Ethanol is an is basically no more corrosive than gasoline and people confuse that with methanol with an m which is a wood-based alcohol which is very corrosive. So ethanol is is a non is is no more corrosive than gasoline would be the most accurate way for me to say it. All right. It allows the oil companies to be able to meet the federal 1990 Clean Air Act for ground level ozone with a with a very safe product, uh, not MTBE. All right. And it allows the car companies to also give the consumer flexibility. The negative of ethanol based fuels, especially 85, is that it has less energy content. 28% less than E0 and it also does not like the cold start as well as E0 but that could very easily be engineered around with the flex fuel vehicle nobody really would have a flex fuel vehicle flex fuel vehicle that would have any problem starting in the coldest of weather with E85 in it all right because of the uh, the, those lookup tables and the ECU it is renewable it is American-made, and I'm coming to you as an engine guy and saying to you, it is an excellent, excellent fuel. And you know what I really wanted to say in the beginning of this podcast is that there's so much, as I said, there's so much information. And I write a column in a magazine called Hemming's Muscle Machines. I have a column called Ask Ray. And whenever I even talk about ethanol, how good ethanol is, as a fuel that I mean my my inbox is just loaded with hate mail is that you know, people don't want to hear it. They're telling me stories about how their cars burned up and this that. And to tell you the truth, that's all hogwash. It has nothing to do. With it. It's just like with GMO crops. Is that you know anybody? You know, the guy gets a cavity. It's because of GMO crops. The guy gets cancer. It's because GMO crops. He needs eyeglasses. It's because GMO crops. He gets arthritis. It's because GMO crops. They demonize with everything, and the auto and so many auto enthusiasts and so many people do the same thing with ethanol. And what really bothers me, it's at the detriment to our country, it's at the detriment to the environment because it's a cleaner burning fuel and it's a detriment to our national security and the success of rural America. But I did not want this podcast to be about that. Because then I would be pushing an agenda like everybody else's. Even though I believe that 110% all the things I just said of the benefit of ethanol. But engineering wise, as an engine guy, as an engineer, as an engine builder, as a successful farming engine man, as the hot rod farmer, ethanol based fuel is an excellent, excellent fuel. It has no negative effects on any vehicle that's modern if you told me, well, I had a 55 Chevy and I didn't like it, well, that's a different story, but we could, I could discuss why I didn't like it and what you could do to make it like it. But And we need, as farmers, to be able to truly embrace this because it is the right thing to do and it is the right thing to do for America. It is the right thing to do for, for rural America. It's the right thing to do for farmers and it's the right thing to do for the oil companies. So I want you to be, go fill it up with some ethanol-based product and fill it up with pride. So listen, I am not going to to include a a letter from a, a reader or listener today in the special delivery section because I went a little bit long on my tirade about ethanol and what a great fuel it is. And remember, the main talking point is the Clean Air Act of 1990. And just ask them, what are you going to do for an oxygenating the fuel? And then you'll just hear crickets. Listen, thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. As I always tell you, I'm honored. And uh, next week's podcast is going to be another, another controversial subject. And it's going to be, I'm going to discuss the right to repair. That's been coming back up in the news lately and uh the right to repair net if you're not familiar with it that's the right for farmers to to have access to repair every aspect of their modern farm equipment so we're going to discuss that next week listen you have a blessed blessed and safe day and as i always say the hot rod farmer is pulling for america and her farmers and ranchers. you take care bye bye